0: on Local Now, Channel 525.
1: Are you going to head to the theaters to see The Chosen? And then, how should the church talk about gambling? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today today. On a Wednesday afternoon, if you have missed any of the shows this week, go get the podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, just subscribe, rate, review. Uh, We'd love to hear people's feedback as well. Like last week, here's the weird deal about radio right like i i am I, my my real job the thing i've been trained in is that i'm a pastor so one of the roles of a pastor is as you know you preach sermons but you preach sermons to people they're right in front of you you can see their eye contact or worse, you see them fall asleep as you're talking, and you know it's happening. Uh, little side note there. Sometimes I get really confused when people feel like they can see me, but I can't see them. I can see you sleeping. I can see you checking your phone. I can see you doing these things. Uh, but there's that immediate feedback loop. Radio doesn't do that. And so to hear back from you, like last week I we, we talked about Oh, I think it was after I talked about Wheaton College and that article that I that I was really frustrated about that talked about, quote unquote, Wheaton going woke. And uh, we talked about that once or twice last week. And I got heard back from people, got texts or Facebook messages from people. uh, And and that was really fun. Uh, And so uh, all that to say, I'd love to hear back from you. You can do that on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram page at Common Good Talk. Uh you can leave a review on the podcast, whatever it is you want to do, we do appreciate it. And we're glad that you are joining us today. All right. I went to the movies the other day with my daughter, my youngest daughter, Emily. She is 14 years old. And let me just proclaim myself dad of the year because I went and saw the new remake of Mean Girls. Uh this is now a musical, and it was all uh, right, I'm gonna make an admission. It was a ton of fun. ton of fun. Uh, Mean Girls is not going to win any Academy Awards. And if you go into it with that, you're like, okay, uh, this is great. But uh, what I didn't go see, but what has just been released in some theaters on February 1st, are the first three episodes of Season 4 of The Chosen. You know of The Chosen. Everybody knows of The Chosen. I always feel like we were ahead of the game with The Chosen because... Way back when Ian was my co host, uh, we used to have Dallas Jenkins on every week. He would come into studio every single week. This was buff. He was telling us about this thing that was about to come out called The Chosen. And I'm sure not even he could have imagined what it was going to do. But it says this After the first weekend, directors, producers, and cast members celebrated the series exceeding expectations and coming in second at the box office. Grossing over $6 million for the weekend and nearly $7.5 million when also counting opening day. People's responses uh, were amazing. Uh, somebody said people left in dead silence. But uh, with momentum continuing to build, seasons, uh, season four episodes one through three of The Chosen was put out in 2200 theaters worldwide. Season four picks up where season three left off. Just after Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people, he continues his ministry, uh, and and it's kind of like he's heading back towards Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, Argyle had the top of this weekend with eighteen million, but then came the Chosen. It topped the Beekeeper and Wonka and Migration. And so it's really fascinating. The creators of The Chosen released the first three episodes. Then episodes four through six will be in theaters later in February, followed by episodes seven and eight being available on February the 28th. Somebody else said this on Facebook. Just amazing. Great job, team. I cried 70 times, seven times. That's somebody who knows their Bible right there. Uh, And so anyway, it's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. Dallas Jenkins has described season four as impactful as the story of Jesus's ministry continues to unfold on the big screen. There's a heaviness that grows as Jesus approaches the events of Holy Week. Like We've all wondered what's the Chosen going to do with Holy Week, with getting there. Uh, and so uh, we shall see. Here's what I want to ask, though. Uh by the way, Jenkins did say, as season four hits the theaters, the creators are already writing scripts for season five. Jenkins shared, my heart is warm. I appreciate all your support and all your prayers. Episodes one through three run nearly three and a half hours. Uh, and so be, be prepared. Be prepared for when you're though. But here's the question I want to ask. That's all the background to how The Chosen continues to especially take the church world by storm. But here's the question I want to ask. Why? Why is the chosen doing so well? Why is it uh, such a cultural phenomenon, especially in the church? Like, people outside the church are seeing it. You hear stories of people coming to faith by watching the chosen. But I think we all know it's primarily... Um, it's primarily to Christians. So why? And I think there's a couple reasons, and this goes back. You can go listen when we talked to Dallas before it ever came out. I think one of the reasons is the chosen better than any other depiction of Jesus and his ministry um, humanizes him, humanizes his disciples, Like, I'll never forget in season one when you realize like you're like, it's Matthew, like on the autism spectrum. Is that what? And I remember asking Dallas about that, why that choice was made. When you see Peter being Peter, (laughs) when you see him being as he is, when you see the way they treat Matthew and other things. And then you just see Jesus laughing. Like, how many of us don't picture Jesus joking and laughing? And crying and having emotion, i think like I think that 's it i don 't think it 's primarily oh, this is a rejection of pop culture, and people are they need something wholesome to see there's there 's an aspect to that, but i don 't think that 's the primary i really don 't I think it 's the humanizing of Jesus uh, that people want to see here and that they 're drawn to, and it 's kind of transformational. Now there's a danger to it. The chosen, while based on the Bible, is not the Bible. So Dallas and his other writers have taken some liberties. And they're very clear about that. It's an interpretation. So please know that when you go and see it. Don't let the chosen replace your Bible. Go in there and and just be you know, I think there's something to seeing a, a depiction of, of who Jesus was, what he did, and it, and it wakes up things in our faith. I think that's why people are drawn to it. So I would encourage you to go check it out. If you haven't started The Chosen, uh, go check out seasons one through three before you hit the, the- theaters for season four. And uh, yeah, just a cultural phenomenon within the church. All right, Super Bowl weekend, it is upon us, the 49ers, the Chiefs, they're going to take on one another come Sunday afternoon. The champion will be crowned of this year's NFL season. Uh, Many people have thought the 49ers were the best team along the way, thought they'd end up playing the Ravens, but can't kill the Chiefs. The Chiefs, uh, you you, you, you gotta beat them, and the Chiefs are kind of a dynastic team at the moment, Patrick Mahomes, in six years, this is what is fifth Super Bowl, fourth Super Bowl, fourth Super Bowl. This is kind of crazy. And so, uh, yeah, really impressive, really impressive start to his career. All right. But with the Super Bowl comes sports gambling, betting. And it is amazing in the last decade how mainstream sports gambling has come. Do you want to know the number one reason that I can say that? Where's this year's Super Bowl located? In Las Vegas. <laughs> the the NFL and all the other sports leagues used to treat Las Vegas like like the third layer of hell. Like we can't go anywhere near there. And now the Super Bowl's there. Now you watch an NFL game and you are bombarded with FanDuel and DraftKings and everything else. ESPN now has its own betting app. Sports gambling and the the major sports leagues now go hand in hand. But there's a danger to sports gambling. Okay, on 60 Minutes, they tackled that this week. There was a team of public interest lawyers at Northeastern University who made the claim that sports betting is similar to another addictive product backed by a powerful industry. Listen to this about what that product is.
0: Given all the high-tech designed to get gamblers onto the sportsbook, for those seeking to quit, they're often directed to a glaringly old-school solution, a 1-800 number. $150 bonus to get you get... is a dangerous approach. Why? Because it takes the entire onus, puts it back on the individual, to take an addictive product like gambling and microbetting, deliver it in light speed with the use of artificial intelligence, and then say to people, but now use this responsibly... It is wrong. And it's very similar to what happened with tobacco. Harry Levant doesn't make that analogy casually. Recently, he paired up with Dick Daynard, a law professor at Northeastern University, an architect of the first major lawsuits against the big tobacco companies. Along with Mark Gottlieb, another public interest lawyer at Northeastern, they are preparing to wage war against mobile gambling addiction. you... Made a name for yourself fighting big tobacco? What do you see as the overlap? I mean, first of all, we're dealing with an addictive product. We're dealing with an industry that will still defend sometimes on the basis that it's really the smoker who's making the choice. You know, so we have that exactly with the the gambling industry. Following Daner's tobacco playbook, in December they filed the first in what they say will be a series of lawsuits, suing DraftKings in Massachusetts for deceptive advertising claims DraftKings says it, quote, disagrees with. The group is also lobbying Congress to enact federal regulations. They say the current mishmash of state-by-state policies just isn't working. This is not the temperance union and no, you're trying no. to
1: outlaw gambling. We we have seen, um, certainly with tobacco, a lot of rules to control the way these products are promoted. And we'd like to see that with these products as well. Right now, um, it's sometimes described as the, the Wild West, right? Because there's almost no controls at all. All right, so they're likening it to tobacco. That we need to be careful and we need to speak about it honestly and be honest about what is going on with sports gambling. Now, the question becomes... What do we as Christians believe? What does the church believe? Bob Smetana wrote on this recently. Uh, It says, why faith leaders lost the battle against online sports betting. He says, on Sunday, millions of Americans will gather to watch, and more than a few will place bets. Americans are expected to bet $1.3 billion on the big game. As legalized sports gambling has spread to nearly 40 states. And so the question becomes, what should we as pastors be saying? What should the church be saying? Some of the nation's largest faith groups, he says, have long considered gambling immoral or a menace to society, as United Methodist Church social principles put it. But faith leaders like Greg Davis are likely fighting an uphill battle, said longtime Boston College professor and Jesuit priest Richard McGowan. McGowan, He is nicknamed the odds father because of his research on gambling. Uh, and he said faith leaders have been caught flat-footed by how fast legalized sports gambling became commonplace. He says people of the right Uh, People have been doing it for years and years and years illegally. And now the government is basically saying, all right, it's fine to do legally. And by the way, we'll make lots of money. That's the little known thing here. uh, States are making billions of dollars on legalized sports gambling. McGowan goes on later to say, when they bet, people think they're supporting the team they're betting on. So it goes back. What do you think? What do you think? Uh. The church should be saying. Because again, it says here, every time you expand gambling, there's a percentage of the population whose lives will be destroyed. I saw Roger Goodell, uh, commissioner of the NFL, say the other day that they are also doing work about uh, responsible betting. That's the old adage. Don't bet more than you can afford to lose. But that's the nature of an addiction. People will continue to chase. Uh So today, the National Council on Problem Gambling estimates that about 2 million Americans have a severe gambling problem, with between 4 and 6 million having moderate or mild gambling problems. There are people in our churches with gambling addictions. So one more time, I ask you before I give you my thoughts, what do you think the church should do? I think the talk here and likening it to gambling... uh, Likening it to smoking, likening it to alcohol is helpful for the church. I'm appreciative that we've kind of, most churches have moved past the, you should never touch alcohol, you're a sinner going to hell if you touch alcohol. But that we're also honest about the problems of alcohol, that it can be to you, or if you drink around somebody who has issues with alcohol, gambling is the same. I do not think that gambling is inherently uh, sinful at all. In fact, um, I've got buddies from church that we do a weekly FanDuel contest with. So I just want to be open about that, right? Like, we're all putting in a very small amount of money, but it's on FanDuel. But we have to be honest that there are people who are susceptible to their lives being ruined by gambling. And we need to talk about that in our churches, The same way we talk about alcohol addiction, the same way we talk about smoking or drugs or sex or whatever else it might be, we need to be honest about the addictive nature of gambling, that just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's always beneficial. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's not detrimental to you and your family. So I think we need to take a measured approach. Says you want to make some bets. That's great. That's fine. It's legal. Do what you're going to do. But know the dangers. What does responsible gambling like responsible drinking look like? What does irresponsible and dangerous gambling look like?
0: And be careful.
1: Like I don't think we need to go back to the days of fundamentalism of saying, uh, to even roll a dice is going to send you to hell. It's not helpful. But it's also not helpful to pretend that just because it's legal, now it's all fine. Whatever is permissible isn't always beneficial. And think about that as we move into the Super Bowl this weekend. Jim Dennison used to be a regular part of our show. He's kind of stepped back. He's The guy's just so busy. He's doing other things that... um he a, has a little bit less time to come on. We'd love to have him on again here in the new fu- near future. But one of the things uh, that he does is he has something called the Denison Forum. That's his big deal, where he literally sends out a newsletter, a daily article, every morning. I don't know how he does it. But the article on the other day, it might have been today or the other day, uh, really caught my eye because I knew that the drug problem in San Francisco in particular is bad. But I didn't know it was this bad. Jim Dennison writing here, the uh, headline says drug addicts outnumber high school students in San Francisco. What has happened and why it matters? San Francisco, it says he writes is on the front pages this week as the 49ers seek to win their next Super Bowl. But the city is making news for tragic reasons as well. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle headlines, San Francisco street horror only grows as drug overdose numbers spike. CNN reports drugs are sold out in the open in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. New York Post adds inside San Francisco's dens of death as liberal city faces drug crisis. And again from CNN, a mother was raising her son in a city she loved. Then San Francisco chose and stole her boy. One of those just tragic stories. And Denison goes on to write. Drug addicts now outnumber high school students in San Francisco. In an area a short walk from Union Square, the city's central shopping district, CNN reports that it's now commonplace to see people using and selling drugs. So what happened? Well, in 2018, the drug overdose death rate in San Francisco roughly matched the national average. Five years later, it's more than double the national average. Why? New York Times columnist reporter explains this. the culture has become more tolerant of people using drugs in San Francisco. When I asked people living on the streets, why they are in San Francisco, the most common response was that they knew they could avoid the legal and social penalties that often follow addiction. Some came from as close as Oakland, believing San Francisco was more pervasive. Keith Humphreys, a drug expert, a drug policy expert at Stanford uh, told this author that San Francisco quote, is on the extreme of a pro drug culture. Activists in the cultures uh, argue for bodily autonomy, claiming that people have the right to put whatever they choose into their veins and their lungs. They say it's no one's business but the drug users. Advocacy groups want people to use drugs more safely, arguing that abstinence is not always a realistic goal. Body autonomy advocates often cite the drug policies of British Columbia, a global leader in harm reduction. However, British Columbia set a record for overdose death rates last year. And uh, Dennison is going to unpack this a little bit, but he quotes G.K. Chesterton's observation: "We what we all dread most is a maze with no center, but that's where we are. That's where we are." Dennison says Americans live in a post-Christian nation. When your compass has no true north, it points wherever you want it to point, and you'll be lost and on your own. I appreciate this about Jim. He says, as I was praying about a biblical response for today's article, I was drawn to Psalm 36. David begins this way. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. That's verses one through six, but then David continues in verses five or one through four. David continues in verses five through six. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great, deep man and beast you save, O Lord. And Dennison says, we Americans have a choice to make. We can persist in our post-truth relativism, de- denying the word of God and choosing our will over his. Or we can seek and submit to God's word and will each day. We can ask what scripture says about the issues we face and then take every thought captive to obey Christ in 2 Corinthians 10, five. So what do we do with that? I'm grateful for Jim for raising the hard topic and trying to point to us to scripture, but what is the church's response to that? Um, yeah. What is our response? We have to be honest that there is a um hmm, there is an epidemic, and there is a problem uh, like this should break our heart like this isn't a political issue, it is a political issue, but it's not just a political issue. This is a human crisis issue. it reminds me it's very different, but it also reminds me of the way we have asked people to think about the immigration crisis. There's policy, but then there's also compassion, and and we as the church are meant to be the ones to show compassion, see everybody in the image of God. It can be hard to see people who are on the streets shooting up drugs or whatever as worthy of the respect that the Bible calls us to give, and so we need to do that, and then we need to ask, what is our nation going to do? What is our nation going to do to stop a drug epidemic? Who's going to stand up and say, you know what? This is lunacy. We can't be like this. This is lunacy. And then um, we have to do something about it. We need to be men and women who pray about this. The churches in San Francisco and other places need to stand up. And then the last thing I would say is this. If you have kids, you need to be speaking about drugs. Like this is not like just a San Francisco issue. Since COVID, we've seen in teenagers drug overdoses and drug abuse on an uh, on an upwards trajectory. With things like fentanyl and other things, drugs are more dangerous now. And so we need to have honest conversations with our children. Don't pretend like, Oh, my good kid would never do that. Don't pretend. And then we need to ultimately point people to Jesus. People are lost apart from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it's a drug deal, whether it's, you know, chasing after money and other, whatever it is, people are searching and we have the answer church. We have the answer, and that answer is found in Jesus Christ. And we must be willing to share that. So that caught my eye. I'm grateful for Jim Dennison sharing that story. Uh, And the question becomes what are we going to do with it? Let's be people who pray, let's be people who are active, who are treating people with dignity. Let's talk to our kids. And then, most of all, let's go into a world with the good news of the gospel, the hope that people are searching all over the place for, whether it be, like we said, in drugs or money or ple- whatever it is. Let's be people who go boldly share that answer. Over at Gospel Coalition, uh, wrote an article entitled Porn is Not Harmless, It's Cruel. He says there's a myth that pornography is harmless. Just a few consenting adults doing what they want with their own bodies, the thinking goes. But this simply isn't true. In reality, pornography is deeply involved in the exploitation of women and children, and it's destructive to its consumers. Pornography is much more than an individual decision. It's part of a system that preys on women and children, and its viewers are participating in, contributing to, and being shaped by that destructive Enslaving system, you know this is Super Bowl weekend, and uh <clears throat> we always bring up this surprising statistic that the number one um, event, if you will, for sex trafficking in a year in the United States is the Super Bowl in the Super Bowl city, and so this is an important thing to be thinking about right now, so Justin Holcomb unpacks this a little bit, and then I want to talk about the church 's role in this. First, he says porn fuels the sex trade. Human trafficking is a form of modern-day slavery, and it's the fastest-growing criminal industry in the world. Sex trafficking is one of the most profitable forms of trafficking and involves many kinds of sexual exploitation, such as prostitution, pornography, bride trafficking, and the commercial sexual abuse of children. According to the United Nations, sex trafficking brings in an estimated $32 billion a year worldwide. In the United States, sex trafficking brings in $9.4 billion annually. Those numbers are incredible. And he makes this difficult point. The trafficking industry wouldn't exist without demand. According to researcher Andrea Bertone, the demand consists of men who feed a patriarchal world system that preys on women and children. There's demand for it. The pornography industry that makes billions of dollars a year fuels the sex trade secondly justin olcombe says pornography shapes sexual desires it shapes the appetite since there's a few basic themes of pornography uh it's that all women and all men want sex at all times it objectifies women particularly some men as well particularly women He goes on to say it's important to know porn isn't just a men's issue, as 28% of people admitting to Internet sexual addiction are women. Uh, Approximately 9 out of 10 children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography on the Internet. The average age of first exposure is 11. Porn teaches its consumers uh, that sex exists just for the pleasure of, of men and that their purpose of women is to be degraded and dehumanized. Like it fuels sexual desires. And especially as our young men see it coming up. So he goes on for a while longer. Let me read the other ones, but I want to talk about what the church does. Number three, pornography exploits child sex abuse victims. Number four, pornography supports rape culture. Number five, it hijacks children's sexuality. Gail Dines, the author of Pornland, how pornography has hijacked our sexuality explains the implications of pornography says, we're bringing up a new generation of boys on cruel pornography. Given what we know about how images affect people, this is going to have profound influence on their sexuality, their behavior, and their attitudes towards women. So we're, we're shaping young men in very harmful ways. And the last one she says is this, or he says, I'm sorry, is this, pornography limits men. While it's not just a men's issue, it means pervasively a men's issue. William Struthers, a biophysic phys, uh, psychologist, explains the effects on men this way. Men seem to be wired in such a way that pornography hijacks the proper functioning of their brains and has a long-lasting effect on their thoughts and their lives. Pornography, friends, is much more than a private individual decision. Justin Holcomb ends it this way. He basically says everyone in the supply chain from produ- production to consumption is participating in the economic juggernaut that is the porn industry, whether they realize it or not. And it's 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 hurting men. It's hurting young men. It's hurting families. It's hurting the church. I think the most powerful thing that article said is uh, it exists because there's demand. And if there's one thing I've learned with working with particularly men in the church— is that pornography uh, is, is so laden for people in guilt and shame in the church. I can't describe to you the number of men that I have talked to who at some point have said, yeah, I st- I haven't, I've looked at pornography or I am currently struggling with pornography and I feel so guilty. We know what the answer is to the guilt and the shame that we feel in our lives. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like this is a battle that can be won. But then I think, especially as men, we need to be willing to talk about this. Do you believe, if you're a man out there listening, do you believe that the consumption of pornography hurts our culture? It hurts your marriage and your family. It hurts you as an individual. If you don't believe that, then you're never going to ignore it. You're not going to make any changes. This is not a guilt thing. This is more an opportunity to say, you know what? This is an issue. This is a discipleship issue. This is a sanctification issue. So I'd ask you, if, if you are a man or a woman uh, who, who looks regularly at pornography, I wanted to put that in front of you so you right. see what it's, where it's coming from and that you're honest about what it's doing to you. You cannot regularly look at pornography and have a growing relationship with Jesus. I will believe that with all of my heart. I'll say it again, you cannot have, a, you cannot have a regular diet of consuming pornography and have a growing relationship with Jesus. They are antithetical to each other. So, which are you going to choose? I suppose becomes the question. In the church, church, I'm speaking to myself here. Uh, we can't be, we can't shy away from this issue. This is an issue we need to talk about. And an issue that needs to be tackled head on. We've talked to some hard topics today, so I wanted to end with some encouragement. We've talked about this pastor many times, actually, named Glenn Packiam. Uh, He is the lead pastor of Rock Harbor Church. He's also the author of The Resilient Pastor and The Intentional Year, amongst other things. Glenn Packiam, he asks this. He says the question—I'm going to play it here for a second, but there's the question he's trying to answer— To whom are you going to give your one wild and precious life? Let's listen to what he says.
0: The question is, to whom are you going to give your one wild and precious life? And the answer is, to the only one who's worthy of it. To the only one who's worthy of it. He's the only one who deserves it all. He's worthy of it all. This is the truth. God's glory and your joy meet together in worship. The reason God invites us to offer him our whole life is not because he's an egomaniac who just tell me more about why you like me. He's, no, he's saying, I made you and I know what makes you fully alive and it's worshiping me.
1: Well, he says the answer is to the only one who is worthy of it. To the only one who's worthy of it. The only one who's worthy of it. Think about that. We give our lives, our attention to so many different things. But he says... When you think about what's your passion, I preached this week out of uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and talked about uh, running the race of life and focusing our eyes on Jesus. So another way to ask this, Glenn Packiam saying, where are you going to focus your eyes? Who are you going to give your life to? He says, the only one who deserves it. The only one who is worthy of it. But then he, starts, he says, God's glory and your joy Meet together in worship. The, he, he created us. He knows us more deeply. And he knows what makes us fully alive, in Glenn Pacquiam's words there. And so the question that before us as we close out today is who are you going to give your life to? What do you do with your one, I love how he calls it, wild and precious life? That's a great question to ask. It's a foundational question uh, to ask. One of the replies on Twitter says, God redeemed you to restore you to the calling that he gave you when he made you. Like, here's the deal. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I've come to bring you life and life to the full. I've come to give you abundant life. So many of us go about our days thinking, fine, I'll follow Jesus. I'll get the fire insurance. I won't go to hell. I want to go to the good place. That's for eternity. So I'll give up my life now, even if it makes my life worse now. But Jesus himself says, Jesus himself says, John chapter 10, verse 10, I've come so they may have life and have it to the full. I've come so that they may have abundant life. Do you believe that life of following Jesus is the life of abundance? Now, it may not be the abundance that we normally talk about. Lots of prosperity, right? This is where we get this wrong with the prosperity gospel. If I just follow Jesus, I'll be happy, healthy, and have lots of money. No, that's not what he's talking about. But do we believe that if we follow Jesus, we will have the abundance of joy and hope, purpose and meeting and life? That again, as Hebrews 12 says, that as we fix our eyes on him and run the race that he has called out for us, do we believe that that's the life that matters, that that's the one of purpose, that he redeemed us to restore us to the calling that he gave us When he made us, do we believe that he knit us together in our mother's womb, that he knows us more deeply than we could ever even know ourselves, and that he calls us his children In Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into his family. Like all of these things taken together, say that it's as I follow Jesus, that it's as I fix my eyes on him, that it's then that I have what I'm searching for. We talked earlier in the show today about the drug problem in San Francisco, and one of the things we said was like, our heart should break at this because people in addiction, and but also people who are workaholics and people uh, who are all sorts of whatever else, it's all about people looking for meaning. They're looking for what makes this life matter. They're looking for things that will fulfill them. And we know in Scripture that it's only in Christ and Christ alone that we are fulfilled, that we have meaning, that we have hope, that we have purpose. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full, abundant life. So I'll end with this question. Do you believe that abundant life, that hope, that joy, that purpose and meaning and abundance Is found in Jesus or is it found in something else? The something else, that's idols. That's idol worship. Like if your idol is money, if you believe, no, I actually believe those things are found if I just had a little bit more money, then that's what you're going to chase with your entire life. You're going to fix your eyes on money and you're going to run that race. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that you never have enough money. Or maybe your idol is comfort. No, I'm going to give my entire life to setting it up so that I will have maximum amounts of comfort. A maximum amounts of leisure. Jesus told a parable about that of the guy who had to build an extra barn because he had so much stuff that he then put his feet up. And he's called a fool. Because here's what happens when you chase after comfort and leisure. Something's going to happen that you can't control that makes life uncomfortable, right? Loss of health, loss of job, loss of something. We can't control everything. Maybe that's your idol is control. But Glenn Packiam there, I think so well says, no, our worship is to be centered in the one who knows us. Who created us who calls us, who has redeemed us, and who promises that it's in him that we have life and life to the full. Do you believe it? That's the question I want to leave you with today. Do we believe that the ultimate life that we are to live, the best life that we could ever live, is running the race, eyes fixed on Jesus, faith remaining intact, Until that day when we cross the finish line and we hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the prayer for my life, for my family, for my church. And that's what I want for all of you out there as well. We're glad that you joined us today. Come on back tomorrow again from four until six. Until that, we hope that you have a great evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.